Palestinian fighters have fired rockets at Israel, a response to a deadly gun battle with Israeli troops that left at least 11 Palestinians dead. It's Thursday, February 23rd. This is WBMOR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a Fox News host says he's been given access to security footage from the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. What that could mean for the investigation. Also, tensions are growing between the U.S. and China, and Apple could be caught in the middle. Today, we estimate 93% of iPhones are built in China. Ahead, how Apple is trying to ease its reliance on Chinese manufacturing. Plus, the challenges involved in getting earthquake relief aid to Syria. And this hour, the legacy of former President Jimmy Carter in the fight against climate change. A wintry mess this morning with snow, rain, sleet, and freezing rain. Temperatures fall throughout the day to the 20s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The National Weather Service says two major winter storms are pelting much of the country. There's a weather system in Southern California that will turn into blizzard conditions in mountainous areas by tomorrow. That could affect travel just outside Los Angeles. A second storm is bringing more blizzard conditions to northern states. That includes South Dakota. Dustin Hansen is with the Public Works Department in the city of Sioux Falls, and he says crews have been plowing streets. So we'll run 24-hour shifts until we get this, uh, this event cleaned up, likely uh, be working through Sunday and potentially in the next week on these 12-hour shifts. Farther east, ice and snow have cut power to more than three-quarters of a million customers in Michigan and Illinois alone. That's according to the tracking site poweroutage.us. Minutes from the Federal Reserve's most recent policy meeting offer new insights into how the central bank is approaching inflation. NPR's Scott Horsley tells us the Fed has raised interest rates aggressively as it tries to bring prices under control. The Fed has raised interest rates eight times since March, including its most recent rate hike of a quarter percentage point earlier this month. The vote for that rate increase was unanimous, but newly released minutes show a few members of the rate-setting committee were willing to go even faster and boost borrowing costs by a half percentage point instead. The Fed has telegraphed that additional rate hikes are likely. Investors now expect that interest rates will stay higher for longer than they were anticipating just a few weeks ago. Some Fed officials think that as consumers become more price sensitive, businesses will be forced to cut their profit margins. That could also help to bring down inflation. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Canadian Defense Department says it is aware of Chinese efforts to conduct surveillance operations in Canadian air, space and waters. As Dan Karpinchuk tells us, an earlier report said Chinese surveillance buoys had been detected in Arctic waters. Defense Department spokesman Daniel Le Boutelier would not provide further information, saying it's to ensure the integrity of military operations. Toronto's Globe and Mail had reported that the Canadian military had detected Chinese monitoring buoys in the Arctic. An expert on Arctic marine security says buoys were likely dropped by Chinese icebreakers and could be used to chart the seafloor in Canadian territory, and perhaps even track American submarines. Earlier, Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie referred to China as an increasingly disruptive power, adding that Ottawa will work with NORAD to protect North American airspace and take a strong position on Canada's Arctic sovereignty. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. The United Nations General Assembly is expected to vote today on a resolution. It calls for peace in Ukraine. The first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is tomorrow. The draft resolution at the U.N. calls for an immediate ceasefire. It also demands that Russia leave Ukraine. You're listening to NPR News.
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. You'll want to give yourself a little extra time if you're headed out early this morning. A wintry mix has made a mess. Here in Boston, we've had snow, rain, sleet, and freezing rain, and that's just in the last hour. State police say the speed limit on the Mass Pike has been lowered to 40 miles an hour from Boston all the way to the New York border. The state has more than 1,800 crews out treating the highways. Right now, the T is not reporting any delays. We'll have more on the forecast in a moment. The rent control proposal from Boston Mayor Michelle Wu appears to face long odds to becoming law. It needs approval from the city council, state legislature, and the governor. As WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports, the proposal was heavily scrutinized at the city council's first public hearing on the topic yesterday. Wu's proposal is facing criticism from progressive councilors who make up a majority of the council. The mayor's plan would allow rents to increase 6% over inflation every year, as measured by the Consumer Price Index. Councillor Kendra Lara thinks that's too high. So for me, the CPI plus 6% is untenable. It's not a direction that I would like to move in. But Councillor Michael Flaherty says he's concerned about rent control's impact on landlords. In addition to stagnant wages, in addition to increased rents, we've also seen increased costs uh, put upon our landlords. Uh, And again, I'm focusing on our good landlords, not our gougers. A real estate industry group is pledging to spend $400,000 to defeat the proposal. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Today isn't the best day for it, but outdoor dining will be a long-term option for restaurants in Newton. The city's current provision for outdoor dining was set to expire in March. This week, the city council passed a measure to allow restaurants to offer the service every year from April through November. Greg Reedman is the director of the Charles River Regional Chamber. He believes restaurants will benefit from the change. So instead of getting temporary seats for their outdoor customers and maybe building a temporary platform, they know they can invest in maybe some better tables and chairs, a more permanent uh, seating arrangement. And what also they can now do is start to think about their hiring and plan their spring menus. Newton Mayor Ruth Ann Fuller said she will sign the measure as soon as possible. New Hampshire is one step closer to legalizing recreational marijuana. Yesterday, the House voted to take the bipartisan bill to the next step. Several marijuana bills have passed the House in recent years, but they've all been blocked by the Senate. Republican Governor Chris Sununu says he's against legalizing pot in the state. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. The Celtics begin their second half of the season tonight as they visit the Indiana Pacers. The Bruins are also on the road. They'll skate with the Seattle Kraken. The weather may be to blame for a big track crush on 495 South in Chelmsford. Police say just one lane is getting by right now at the crash near Route 110. It's a sloppy mix of rain, sleet, and snow out there right now. That wintry mix is going to be with us through the afternoon. The high today will be in the mid-30s. A chance for freezing rain, sleet, and rain overnight. Temperatures will fall to the 20s. Mostly sunny tomorrow with a high in the 30s. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 707. WBUR supporters include BetterHelp committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. In their own way, House Republicans are finally investigating the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021. You will recall that many people have investigated the attempt to overturn a Democratic election. Prosecutors have obtained many convictions. Grand juries are still out. A House committee investigated for nearly two years, and that committee included five Democrats and two Republicans, although most Republicans pulled out of the committee. Now Republicans control the House of Representatives, which means they control the evidence. And Speaker Kevin McCarthy has reportedly given a lot of it to an investigator. Fox News host... Tucker Carlson. Carlson says so anyway. He's done entire programs and documentaries promoting conspiracy theories and alternative histories of the attack. We've called the Democratic chairman of the January 6th House investigation, Benny Thompson of Mississippi, who now serves as the ranking member, the top Democrat on the Homeland Security Committee. Congressman Thompson, welcome. Thank you for having me. Democrats are saying it's dangerous to get this video out there. Why would it be? Well, it's dangerous because some of the video uh, we chose not uh, to share in uh, concert with the Capitol Police because it would compromise the security of the Capitol. And at no point did we want to make the Capitol more vulnerable by sharing that kind of information with the public. And, and so we had a rigorous process, uh, and we went through it and decided on a number of occasions that we would not uh, share certain video. But now to make the entire 44,000 hours of video available to just one network is not in the good interests of this country. Uh, can you give me some idea of what kind of compromising information you were talking about? Granting you may not want to be too specific, but do you mean yeah. this video would reveal something about a way that other people could attack yeah, the Capitol? Yeah, it, 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 uh, you know, there are a number of cameras uh, positioned all through the Capitol. Uh, that video would identify those positions. Uh, when members were escorted out of the Capitol uh, during the height of the insurrection, uh, that uh, that path is a secured path not known to the public. Uh, it's available on the video. So if there was someone who wanted to do harm to people, then access to this video clearly puts those individuals who work in that building, who visit the building, at risk. Uh, it's pretty clear what uh, someone like Tucker Carlson uh, can do with video like this. He can at least make an argument. He can advance a narrative that you, your committee, edited it selectively. That is surely one of the narratives that can come out of this. Carlson can go into the fuller video and say, look what they didn't show. Look what they didn't sh show. That's right. Well, uh, let me say, there, there were things that we did not show but it was because the Capitol Police said, no, this is a security risk, don't do it. And we followed it. And let me tell you how that process worked. We had a secure terminal. Uh, we had certain individuals who uh, had access to it. They had a sole password for themselves to do it. And at no point did we access any video without the chief of the Capitol Police's approval. 
Well, let's get you a, a chance to answer a bottom line question here then. We did see your many hearings on this. Uh, they were highly produced. There was a lot of information in them, but it was your committee's point of view. Are you prepared to say that you stand entirely behind that and that you left out nothing truly important that the public needed to understand the attack on the Capitol that There's day? absolutely nothing that we produced that we can't prove. Uh, the only items that we did not share with the public based on the material we shared was because of the Capitol Police's insistence that we not do it because it would make the Capitol more vulnerable. Do you have any way, Congressman, to prevent the release of video that you think would be hazardous? Is there a legal mechanism or any other? Well, there's no legal uh, mechanism, but look, uh, Speaker McCarthy ought to understand uh, the gravity of what this decision means to the public. Uh, I understand he had to make certain commitments to become Speaker, but those commitments under no circumstance should jeopardize uh, the, the, the safety and security of the United States Capitol. So uh, he should have uh, consulted Democrats. He should have consulted Leader Jeffries and, and said, look, uh, but as you understand, the chief of the Capitol Police didn't know that this material had been released until it was in in print. So uh, this was an individual decision made by the speaker. Just uh, can you imagine the, cap the chief of the Capitol Police reading about it in the paper? Just in about 10 seconds, are you convinced of what you just suggested, that McCarthy is releasing video to Tucker Carlson because he did that to get right-wing votes to be speaker? Yes. Okay. Well, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Benny Thompson is the ranking member, the top Democrat in the House Homeland Security Committee, and was the chairman of the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack. They used to be called Kremlinologists. That's Americans and others who closely study the communist leadership of the former Soviet Union. Now, there's a new generation of experts who could be called Putinologists. They're trying to understand Russia by analyzing its leader, Vladimir Putin, and the war he's waging in Ukraine. NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie has our story. As Russian President Vladimir Putin massed his military on Ukraine's border in late 2021, many analysts doubted Putin would actually invade. But not Dmitry Alperovitch. He was seeing Ukraine slip away from his orbit, and when he saw that uh, he could no longer control it, uh, it was pretty clear to me that he was going to try to move in and attempt a, a regime change. Alperovitch was born in Moscow and came to the U.S. at age 13 in 1994. He's never returned to Russia, though that country and Putin have shaped his life. He was a founder of the cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike, which often investigated Russian computer hacks, like that 2016 breach of the Democratic National Committee. Here's how he describes the Russian leader. I've always viewed him as a gambler. Most of the time he had got lucky. This is the one gamble that probably his biggest uh, that has not worked out well so far. Alperovitch now heads Silverado Policy Accelerator, a think tank with a strong focus on Russia and Putin. I, th I think Putinologist is, is a good um, tagline. He sees himself, I believe, as, as a new czar, that he has more power today as a Russian leader than really anyone has since Stalin. Kremlinologists tried to interpret the Soviet Union from fragmentary information coming out of the highly secretive communist leadership. 
Putin is a much more public figure than Soviet leaders. But he's also highly unpredictable, creating a demand for Putinologists like Julia Yaffe, who accepts the label with some reluctance. It's something I fought for a long time. But at the same time, people in the West have a really hard time understanding him. And somebody needs to translate him for the, for the West. So, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> she left Moscow for the U.S. with her family at age seven in 1990. In college at Princeton, she planned to be a doctor. But I couldn't resist Soviet history and switch tracks. I kept trying to do something else and kept getting sucked in professionally. So I've basically been doing this professionally in one form or another my whole professional life. That included a three-year stint in Moscow a decade ago. Her editor suggested she write a column called Kremlinology 2012. It was supposed to be a kind of tongue-in-cheek thing because it was like, who does Kremlinology anymore? But of course, the system was becoming more and more and more Soviet, and there were fewer and fewer ways to get into it to understand it. So it's back. Yoffe, who now writes for Puck News, traveled often to Russia until a few years ago. She writes about the way Putin shaped Russia and prepared it for his military adventures. He created this cult around World War II that glorifies war, that sanctifies war. And then once a war starts, it's pretty easy to convince Russians that this is a war just like that and that they need to go and, and, and do it. Michael Kaufman says emphatically he should not be called a Putinologist. He's an expert on Russia's military, a specialty that nearly vanished when the Soviet Union collapsed. The field of Russian military studies had almost died or was on life support. So I found myself in many respects trying to work to help revive the field. Kaufman does that through his prolific output at the research group, the Center for Naval Analyses. He was born in Ukraine when it was still part of the Soviet Union and left at age 10 just before the 1991 Soviet breakup. Kaufman often returns to Ukraine and was there last October for a close-up view of the war. Despite his deep knowledge, he's wary of making predictions. Military analysts like myself thought the war was going to come, but uh, got the initial period of war, how the Russian military was going to actually invade and how those early weeks were likely to shake out wrong ourselves. So uh, I spent time updating my views. He expects to go back to Ukraine, but none of these analysts plan to visit Russia in the near term. Again, Dmitry Alperovich. One of the most bizarre things that have happened to me last year is getting sanctioned by Russia, the country that I was born in. It is somewhat of a badge of honor, but uh, nevertheless, uh, there, there's certainly a bittersweet feeling about it. Putinologists may now be in great demand, but incurring the wrath of the Kremlin is an occupational hazard. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, how international politics and a decade of war is hindering efforts to get aid to parts of Syria devastated by the recent earthquake. It's 719. 
Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, partnering with the National Society of Black Engineers to accelerate STEM education and careers. MathWorks.com NSBE. In Nigeria, millions of people rely on cash every day, but right now it's nearly impossible to get. That's led to a lot of frustration just days before the country's presidential election. No, I cannot be proud of this country because the country has messed a lot of people up. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, Nigeria's cash crisis, on All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. A new restaurant in Dorchester is trying to change the way you think about immigrant food. The spot is called Comfort Kitchen, and it's one of the hottest new restaurants in the city. We'll take you inside coming up at 820 here on Morning Edition, or you can check out the story now at WBUR.org. Take things easy if you're driving this morning. There are icy spots, especially on untreated roads. We'll have rain and sleet this morning coming down on a coating of snow that fell overnight. Freezing rain this afternoon and temperatures fall throughout the day to the mid-20s by late afternoon. It'll also be pretty windy. Tonight, cloudy, a low in the mid-20s with a chance of freezing rain, sleet, and a little snow overnight. Right now it's 34 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with a standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at subaru.com Solterra. And from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. In the two weeks since an earthquake rocked Turkey and Syria, rescue workers and international aid have poured into southern Turkey. But in the quake zone in northern Syria, already ravaged by war, the humanitarian response took days. The U.N. called it a failure. Survivors pleaded for help. Many of the roads were destroyed and had giant fissures in them or cracks. The airport in Antakya was not open. And the aid that was being sent into Turkey was used by the Turks. So nothing really dribbled down into the opposition region because it was hard to get in there. And Assad, of course, is at war with these rebel militias supported by Turkey. So he, of course, didn't want to let materials go into there from his side. That's Joshua Landis of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. He says the response highlights the complications of getting aid to a place mired in war where no one entity is in total control. Syria today is divided into three different sections ruled by different people. Assad rules about 65 percent of the country, and he rules the major cities, Damascus, Aleppo. The United States rules a big hunk with their proxy militia, largely led by Kurds, in the northeast. And in the northwest, where the earthquake hit the hardest, is 
ruled by a bunch of different opposition militias that are supported by Turkey. Our co-host Leila Fadl spoke with Landis about the challenges of delivering aid to Syria without empowering a government that tortures and kills the opposition. Assad wants to use the earthquake and the outpouring of both Arab support, which has been tremendous, as well as international support in order to re-legitimize himself, get himself back into the Arab League. He's been completely ostracized and Syrian government has been isolated. And to, in a sense, try to put the civil war behind him and become a non-pariah, if you will. Is it working? It is. It is working. Saudi Arabia has sent uh, many plane loads of uh, help. And this is very important because the Saudis had been very strict observers of this boycott. Sisi, the head of Egypt, called Assad for the first time and gave his condolences. Many other governments have been responding as well, Arab governments. They're using this occasion to try to reestablish some kind of relation, break this boycott, because they understand that the civil war is over, Assad has survived, and they have no choice but to try to establish some new kind of relationship with the Syrian government. And there's even that added layer of complication because some of these opposition groups, if they're not allies with the U.S., may be considered terrorists. Absolutely. And then that would, if you give to the wrong group... The major ruler in this rebel area is Abu Mohammed al-Jawlani, and he was a sidekick of Caliph Baghdadi, the head of Mm. ISIS. And later he became his own separate guy with Nusra, the Al-Qaeda wing in Syria. And he has evolved over time and now is pro-Turkish sort of and uh, has promised that he will not engage in any international terrorism. But still, he is designated as a terrorist by the United States and Turkey, and it makes it very difficult to give aid legitimately to him and his government. Now, there are growing calls to lift sanctions entirely so that money and aid can get in, because even before the earthquake, both in government areas and opposition areas, people were starving because of the inability to have accounts. People didn't get electricity, things like that. But there's also a very loud voice on the other side saying, yeah, if you lift sanctions, you're only benefiting this very brutal government that conducted a war that killed hundreds of thousands of Syrians. And with the temporary relief, you can't trust that this president won't then just empower himself. Well, there's some truth in that. Uh, You know, any kind of opening to Syria creates opportunity, creates jobs, creates money, and all of that will undoubtedly, some of it will get to the president and to the people around him and the government. That's undeniable. On the other hand, much of that money is getting to the people who need it most. For example, my wife, a Syrian, Latakia, their family is terrified. Their house has been just shaking. In the aftershocks. Shaking constantly, their apartment building, and they've been living in their car for the last several days. Wow. We've been able to send money through Western Union. There is a virtuous cycle of diplomacy that's going on because the White House announced that they were going to lift sanctions temporarily for six months. Then Western Union which was the only way to get money and said it would no longer charge 15% of every dollar that goes into Syria and it would allow you to send it for free. So that money is now getting to the people who need it most. It's not going to the government. But then does Assad just get to get away with everything that he's done? I guess my, my bigger question is, 
you know, I think the earthquake brought Syria back into the world's conscience. Does this reopen the conversation on what to do about Syria instead of ignoring it? It does. It does. And, it, you know, it, you know, the problem with the last 15 years is that Assad was not turned out of the government. And in many ways, this was a dilemma that the West couldn't solve. The West wanted to turn him out, but once they saw what the opposition was, that, that ISIS and al-Qaeda had grown to be the dominant force in the opposition, they got spooked by their own policy of funding these opposition groups, and they stopped funding them, and that left Assad in power. They don't like it. They put terrible sanctions on, but they've left him in power. Mm. And, and that has been, you know, that nobody knows what to do in this situation. They don't know how to change the government and they've given up trying. And in that sense, sanctions are their last option, but they're not a good option. It is time for the international community to figure out a new way of dealing with the region and allowing Syrian people to rebuild their lives. Joshua Landis, the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, the U.S. is openly accusing Russia of war crimes in Ukraine. But there's little chance of Russian President Vladimir Putin facing trial soon. And Apple is trying to change the way it does business in response to increasing tensions between the U.S. and China. It's 729. Follow the news all day with WBUR. You can stay with us no matter where you go. We're at 90.9 on the radio, WBUR.org online, and on the WBUR mobile app on your phone. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Later today, the U.N. General Assembly is expected to vote on a resolution calling for Russian forces to leave Ukraine immediately and without conditions. The resolution calls for Ukraine's sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity to be restored. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., says Russian forces are guilty of crimes against humanity in Ukraine. The bombing of kindergartens and high schools and hospitals the slaughters of innocent civilians. Tomorrow marks one year since Russian forces invaded Ukraine. Palestinian militants in Gaza have been launching rockets into southern Israel today. This follows an Israeli raid in the occupied West Bank that led to a deadly gun battle. At least 11 people were killed in the fighting, including a six-year-old. Washington Post reporter Miriam Berger is in the West Bank city of Ramallah. The Israeli military said it was targeting in particular three wanted fighters who had carried out attacks and were planning immediate attacks. But, you know, this is a very, very crowded area. Lots of civilians were in the area, and it left a very, very chaotic and bloody scene. Berger was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. Israeli military jets have been striking targets in northern and central Gaza. This is NPR News from Washington.
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's a bit of a mess out this morning. That's because of a winter storm that's moving through, bringing a mixed bag. In the last half hour here at the WBUR studios in Boston, we've had snow, sleet, and rain. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says this mess is going to last most of the day. It's a little bit of everything out there. The wintry mix found mostly north and west of Boston. It's light and will taper through midday, but expect tough travel and slick spots on untreated surfaces. The temperatures will actually drop this afternoon into the 20s north of the city, even in Boston to below freezing later today. Then another round of light sleet and freezing rain arrives 8 to 10 p.m. It only lasts a few hours, but that will mean continued slippery spots through tonight. The State Department of Transportation has nearly 1,300 crews out treating the roads right now. It says the speed limit on the Mass Pike has been lowered to 40 miles an hour. It will be dry but cold tomorrow. Boston clergy members say they need to take action to deal with the recent uptick of violence in the city. They want to partner with Boston's gang unit to do street outreach work. Clergy members from churches around the city are part of the effort. Church officials say similar work was done in the 90s and was successful. A new restaurant in Dorchester is earning accolades just weeks after opening. Comfort Kitchen is run by two immigrants who met working in other Boston restaurants. As WBWAR's Lainey Ruxtell reports, they have strong opinions about food and the industry around it. Co-owner Biplaw Rye says Comfort Kitchen is trying to address pervasive problems he witnessed in former workplaces, like low wages and toxic environments. He also wants the menu to educate diners about the political forces that have shaped what people in different cultures eat. You'll have people that are not aware of, you know, cultural differences, but you'll have people who are really into it. Let's explain these dishes really well so people have the clear picture of what it is. Comfort Kitchen is in a historic former warming station for people who were waiting for streetcars. If you're going for dinner, make a reservation. They're booked out for months. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. The Bruins will go for their fifth straight win tonight. They'll visit the Seattle Kraken. The Celtics are back from the All-Star break tonight. They'll take on the Pacers in Indianapolis. And your forecast recapping that messy forecast. We'll get a mix of rain, freezing rain, and sleet today. It'll be windy, and temperatures will fall this afternoon to the mid-20s. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. We have a story on the difference between saying and doing. It's the difference between saying Russia committed war crimes and getting those claims into court. Vice President Harris did the first part the other day. She attended the Munich Security Conference and said Russia committed crimes against humanity. Quote, we have the evidence. NPR's Deborah Amos reports on the second part. 
The vice president's words are rooted in international law, crimes against humanity, when acts of war are widespread, systematic, and intentionally target civilians. In the early weeks of the war, President Biden called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. But a year later, the U.S. has yet to translate its rhetoric into prosecution, says human rights lawyer Reed Brody. Ukraine has made this a priority. Brody wrote Catching a Dictator, a book about the conviction of a brutal African leader. Catching a Russian president is even harder. Nobody's going to be putting the handcuffs on Vladimir Putin anytime soon. But these are crimes that have no statute of limitations. There is some good news here, says David Sheffer, who served as the first ambassador for war crimes issues in the Clinton administration. Never before in the history of humankind has a situation of mass atrocities been investigated so quickly by so many individuals. Still, even as the vice president vowed accountability in Munich, conversations around that security conference shows countries in the global south are not yet on board, says Brody. As somebody who worked in Africa for the last 30 years, I'm just so aware of this perception, particularly in the global south, that international justice only kicks in against enemies and outcasts, that there's one justice for the West and there's one justice for enemies of the West. For Ukraine, the enemy is Russia, and Ukraine's leaders insist on justice in their national courts and at the International Criminal Court at The Hague. But their ultimate aim is even higher, an international war crimes tribunal with the jurisdiction to judge Russian aggression. That law was created for the Nuremberg Tribunals 80 years ago. The crime of aggression, also called the leadership crime, targeted those who planned and carried out World War II. Ukraine's prosecutor general, Andriy Kostin, was in Washington a few weeks ago to lobby the Biden administration for backing. Being optimistic, we will have it, and then our idea will be real. His to-do list is a challenge. For starters, international trials get a mixed political reception in Washington. For example, the U.S. didn't join the International Criminal Court, but used its political muscle to weaken it, says Brody. Britain, France, and the United States were able to limit the ICC's jurisdiction so that it can't prosecute aggression by citizens of non-consenting states like Britain, France, and the United States, but also like Russia. An international war crimes tribunal could be created by a majority vote at the U.N. General Assembly. Not to date. We'll see. That's James Goldston with the Open Society in New York. He says a U.N. vote is far from clear. There has been resistance to the notion that this is a global problem, with the suggestion by some that this is a European problem or a northern problem. Again, read Brody. There already is a lot of justice in Ukraine. I mean, there are massive war crimes investigations that will work their way up. He will not get off justice-wise, whether or not there is a tribunal for aggression, the supreme international crime. International justice is often uneven, takes years, and rarely delivers accountability. Yet Ukraine's victims will settle for nothing less than documenting their trauma in an international court of law. Deborah Amos, NPR News, New York. Apple is the world's most valuable tech company in large part because of China. Now, Apple is reckoning with its dependence on China. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen examines what's at stake. In the late 1990s, Apple was in trouble. 
Microsoft and IBM were doing laps around the company, it was having a really hard time competing with PCs, which were cheaper and quickly becoming the de facto computer in offices and households. Here's former Apple CEO Steve Jobs recalling this period in a 2010 interview. Well, Apple was about 90 days away from going bankrupt back then in the early days, and it was much worse than I thought. Apple's turnaround had many factors. Steve Jobs, the introduction of products like the iPod, and very importantly, China. The country had a massive low-wage labor force and had developed manufacturing and engineering expertise. In 2001, Apple brokered a partnership with China. The government poured billions of dollars into new infrastructure for Apple, building factories, paving new roads, constructing housing for Apple workers. Kate Whitehead helped oversee Apple's operations in China. I was around when they called up the local city and asked them to build another airport because we needed a larger airport to ship out more goods. That's right. If Apple needed another airport in China, it happened and it happened fast. Doug Guthrie is another former Apple employee who focused on China. He says China set up industrial clusters where little components for Apple products were made and then quickly moved to a final assembly plant run by the company Foxconn. Apple engineers were embedded there to keep an eye on quality control. If you knew how to navigate that market really well, which Tim Cook and Apple did, you could really find the best partner who would make the best component for the cheapest price. And that was sort of the brilliance of the system. But now the brilliance of the system in China has come to represent something else to Apple, a huge risk. As geopolitical tensions rise over issues including spying, the suppression of human rights, and the country's threats against Taiwan, Apple is worried about its footprint in China. Apple declined to comment to NPR, and CEO Tim Cook tends to give vague answers when he's challenged about China's human rights record, like he does here in a 2020 interview with The Atlantic. When I look at China, I see a significant number of users that love Apple product, and I want to serve them. And we believe everybody should be treated with dignity and respect. It's sort of our basic belief as a company. The pressure on Cook really heated up at the height of COVID lockdowns in China. Inside the sprawling industrial campus known as iPhone City, which spreads across two square miles, protesting workers clashed with riot police over stringent lockdown conditions. This was a problem for Apple, but it didn't have a backup plan. That's according to Jeff Fieldhack. He's with the firm CounterPoint Research. Apple lost about a billion dollars a week from devices not being manufactured, shipped, and uh, hitting stores across the globe. Fieldhack says when there are factory disruptions in China, it reverberates, and that's because... Today, we estimate 93% of iPhones are built in China. Apple is trying to set up shop elsewhere. It's now making a small percentage of iPhones in India, and it's making AirPods in Vietnam. But up and leaving China is not going to happen anytime soon. Former Apple operations manager Whitehead says China's extraordinary support of the Silicon Valley giant turned around its fortunes and made it a global success. But she says Apple may have gotten addicted. And it was a smart move by the government to encourage this growth, but it became like a little bit like a drug. A drug that Apple is unlikely to kick anytime soon. Bobby Allen, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up next on Morning Edition, experts are assessing the risks of China selling arms to Russia. And coming up next, remembering Jimmy Carter's contributions to the fight against climate change. In your forecast, a coating of snow fell overnight. As, in, as you look outside this morning, you'll see rain and sleet coming down on top of that. 
That may turn to freezing rain this afternoon. Temperatures fall throughout the day from where they are now to the mid-20s. and It'll also be windy. Tonight, cloudy and low 20s. And overnight, we may see freezing rain, sleet, and snow. No accumulation is expected. Sunny and low 30s on Friday. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. Cambridge-based Jounce Therapeutics is merging with a British biotech in a $425 million deal. The news of the deal with Red X Pharma comes just one day after Jounce announced it would cut its own workforce by more than half. Jounce says the merger will allow the companies to better focus on specialized treatments for cancer and other diseases. Honeywell International plans to permanently close its manufacturing plant in Smithfield, Rhode Island, by the end of the year. The move will leave more than 120 people without a job. Honeywell says the layoffs will begin in April and be finished by November. Boston-based Harpoon Brewery will soon offer its first-ever drink infused with THC. That's the substance in marijuana that gives you a high. Harpoon says the drink does not contain any alcohol. It will only be available at recreational dispensaries in the state. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from EBSCO, currently hiring and committed to letting people thrive. Information about hybrid and remote positions is at careers.ebsco.com. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at wtgrantfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Martinez. The announcement that former President Jimmy Carter is receiving hospice care has us looking back at his time in office. And this morning, we're examining Carter's environmental legacy. Jeff Brady from NPR's Climate Desk joins us. Uh, Jeff, President Carter came into office in the 70s when the U.S. imported a lot of oil. Embargoes uh, used to have my dad cursing at the long lines at gas stations. So how did Carter respond to that? You know, one big thing, he focused on energy conservation, and that seems like a given today, but it wasn't really on Americans' minds after the 1950s and 60s when it seemed like all that oil would always flow. Uh, But the Arab oil embargo came in 1973 over U.S. support for Israel, and energy experts started worrying that oil and natural gas might run out. So shortly after Carter took office in 1977, he delivered what has become known as the sweater speech. He sat by a fireplace, wore a cardigan sweater, and addressed the country on television. All of us must learn to waste less energy. Simply by keeping our thermostats, for instance, at 65 degrees in the daytime and 55 degrees at night, we could save half the current shortage of natural gas. You know, some people made fun of him for this. That's how unusual the idea of energy conservation was at the time. Um, Another unusual thing Carter did, he famously put solar panels on the White House in 1979. And we have a clip from that press event. 
Today, in directly harnessing the power of the sun, we are taking the energy that God gave us, the most renewable energy that we will ever see, and using it to replace our dwindling supplies of fossil fuels. So whatever happened to those solar panels? You know, they were removed less than a decade later uh, during Ronald Reagan's Republican administration. Uh, Reagan beat Carter in a landslide election and came in with different policies. Since then, the country's conservation and alternative energy efforts, they've progressed in fits and starts, depending on who's president. I talked with Amy Myers Jaffe. She directs the Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab at New York University. She says Carter made the U.S. a leader on renewable energy, like wind and solar, but she says that didn't last. Had the United States stayed the course and we had not had volatility in our federal efforts in alternative energy, we would maybe be still the premier country for alternative energy. Instead, she says the U.S. is playing catch-up with countries like Denmark and Spain on wind energy and China for solar and electric vehicles. So, Jeff, ultimately, what was the Carter administration's record on climate change? He actually received a memo the summer after he took office in 1977 from an advisor in his administration who warned carbon dioxide from fossil fuels could lead to, quote, catastrophic climate change. But the next day, Carter's energy secretary downplayed that and said more research was needed before the president got involved. Carter seems to have paid attention to that. His focus was was more on securing energy supplies during his administration. So overall, his environmental legacy is a mixed one, but uh, we also see President Carter's fingerprints on the aggressive climate change policies the Biden administration is pursuing and implementing today. All right, Jeff Brady from NPR's Climate Desk. Jeff, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering brave the weather to be here <laughs> to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Friday Eve. Happy Friday Eve. I was kind of enjoying that low bass groove. Yeah, let's we'll go back to his door. <laughs> All right. So Hiawatha Bray. Yeah. Uh, tech writer for the Boston Globe. We always learn a lot and have a blast when he's in. He's coming in today. We're going to talk about two things. One, there's been reporting, uh, even here on Morning Edition, about the Supreme Court cases heard in the last two days around basically the responsibility of social media platforms for the nature mm-hmm. of the content, right? So he's going to take a tech person's look at that, what the implications might be for tech companies, including those that have a lot of workers here in Massachusetts. Do me, I love his reporting. Do me a favor. Ask him how he thinks that Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson is changing the tone of the ooh, court because ooh, yeah. she had some really good points yeah. uh, this week. So anyway, please go that. on. I will do that. I'll ask him. And then he also, and I'm just so excited to do this, he looked at what kinds of balloons are up there <laughs> now that we seem to be shooting them down. And he's going to teach us a little bit about who puts balloons up for what purposes, how they're built, how they work, that kind of thing. So plenty to talk with him about. Sounds very interesting. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.50. 
Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. A story we heard from Golchera Hoja begins with the answer to a seemingly simple question. Where are you from? Um, how to begin? <laughs> First, um, let me give you a little bit tour for where is my home country located. She's from western China, in Xinjiang province. At least that's where I'd find her home city if I looked on the globe on my desk. But that same city looks a little different on the map in Hoja's mind. In describing your home, you did not say my province. You said my country. Why do you say that? We proudly know our country was free. She grew up in China's Uyghur region, and she stresses its differences in language, religion, and culture with other parts of China. Her father was an archaeologist familiar with the Uyghur version of history, but her schools taught her a Chinese nationalist story. A reminder of who was in charge was never any farther than the clock on the wall. They using Beijing time in Urumqi. <laughs> we, our time difference is two hours. Oh, this is a famous thing about China. There's only one time zone for the entire country, yes. even though it's immense. Yes, it's very uncomfortable, making you life messy. Hoja's memoir is called A Stone is Most Precious Where It Belongs. It tells her personal experience of a very public story, the repression of China's Uyghurs. Though Xinjiang is an internationally recognized part of China, she says her region felt colonized by the central government. Ethnic Chinese kept moving into her mountainous region when she was a girl. Yet she also describes a period when she was able to embrace Uyghur culture. from very, very young age. I was the school star. She danced in loose and colorful traditional clothes, and she caught the attention of the Chinese authorities. The government chose her to become a kind of ambassador for Uyghurs, or rather, for the idea of Uyghurs as part of China. And then they choosing me to represent China to go to international dance festival in Japan. Did you think at the time, I'm being used here? No. That time I was so proud. <laughs> but uh, when we prepared to go to Japan, they teach us if the Japanese people ask you where you're from, who you are, you must say, I am Chinese citizen. But unfortunately, when I start to speak, the Japanese students asking me totally different questions, making me so nervous. They were saying, why you dress differently? Why are you speaking differently? Their questions raised questions in her mind, 
and this is a vital part of Hoja's story. Eventually, she became a journalist, reached the United States, and got a job broadcasting to people back home. She worked for Radio Free Asia, a U.S. government-supported news service. Using our own language. She also spoke out against China's treatment of Uyghurs, meeting officials in the U.S. Congress and the Trump administration. The Chinese government that once showcased her publicly accused her of terrorist activities. And in 2018, she heard the news. I received a call from our neighbor's daughter. She told me um, all my relatives arrested because of me, my work. It's hard to verify much from Western China, but she says two dozen of her relatives were arrested at about the same time. They were later released, but in the years since, she has only been able to talk to her mother on monitored phone calls. Every time we talk, we cannot talk very sensitive stuff. I just ask, uh, how are you? Did you drink your you know, medicines, how was my father, all those regular questions repeating, you know. And she just says, we are okay, we are totally okay, don't worry, just live your life, you know, she repeating that. And mostly she repeat, be careful. I don't know why, maybe the Chinese government threatening them. Two years ago, China showed her mother and brother on state TV, denouncing her. After many years, I saw their face. I was just happy to see them. You know, I can able to see their face. You didn't even worry about the words, did you? No, no. I even don't remember. Just feeling guilty. It changed a lot. If you need a moment, please take it. Sorry. No, it's okay. If you need a moment, take it. Yeah, they just, they're doing best to encouraging me, to supporting me, you know. You didn't do anything wrong. They're giving this message. They said that? They were able to say they, that? No, I can't feel. You feel it? Yes. The, the connection between child and mother is very... Magical. Even they don't say any word. <laughs> you can understand their silence. Even. I'm trying to think of what is possible now. You note that in recent decades, China has changed the demographics of what you view as your country. Independence <sighs> of some kind doesn't seem possible. What do you hope for? You know, I want to give the message to the Chinese government, even you are locked down so many millions of people, even you kill them, you cannot kill their hope. And you cannot kill their dream. Even they monitor they 24-7. But you never know what is inside their heart. Our country is alive in our heart. No power can change that. Gulchera Hoja is the author of A Stone is Most Precious Where It Belongs. Thank you so much. Thank you for the, giving me this opportunity. I'm sorry to make you cry. Um, oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, uh, 
when I talk about um, my parents, I always uh, getting emotional. <laughs> It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm E. Martinez. Windy today with temperatures falling throughout the day from where they are now to the mid-20s. Meanwhile, we'll get a messy mix of rain, sleet, freezing rain, and snow. It's 34 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Violence is escalating in the occupied West Bank in the wake of a gun battle between Palestinian fighters and Israeli troops that killed at least 11 Palestinians. It's Thursday, February 23rd. This is WBMAR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, China's top diplomat is visiting Russia today amid rising U.S. concerns that China may sell arms to Russia for use against Ukraine. Also, the Biden administration is placing new restrictions on who can seek asylum in the U.S. Some immigration advocates kids are outraged. This is very nearly a carbon copy of the Trump asylum plan that was blocked by the courts. And this hour, we meet the immigrant owners of an acclaimed new Boston restaurant who are trying to educate diners about world cuisine. We tell the story of the ingredients, but not just the ingredients, but also the people behind it and the, the story of how it got to be where it is. Rain, sleet, and freezing rain today with temperatures falling to the 20s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The National Weather Service says two powerful storms are pummeling much of the U.S. One storm is hitting Southern California. The other has spread far across northern states. There are blizzard warnings up from Wyoming to northern Wisconsin. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg will visit the site of a toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio today. NPR's David Schaper reports it's his first visit since the accident nearly three weeks ago. Buttigieg has been criticized for staying away from the site of the train wreck, particularly by Republicans who suggest the federal response has been lacking. But a spokesperson says Buttigieg waited so he wouldn't detract from the emergency response efforts. It says the secretary is going now because the EPA is transitioning from emergency response to the long-term remediation phase. In addition to meeting with state and local officials, first responders, and families affected by the derailment, Buttigieg will be briefed by DOT investigators who are working with the National Transportation Safety Board to determine the cause of the derailment. Meanwhile, the NTSB will release its preliminary report on the investigation. David Shaper, NPR News. The federal government will default on its debt unless Congress steps in in the next months and votes to increase the nation's borrowing limit. The effects of a default would be catastrophic for the economy. The borrowing limit is also called the debt ceiling. 
Republicans and President Biden have been sparring over this. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports a new poll from NPR, PBS NewsHour Marist, finds that Americans are also divided on the issue. Americans are largely split on whether to even raise the debt ceiling at all. About half of respondents in the survey say they support raising it, and almost equal numbers say they don't, which is clearly pointing to the looming fight on this. You know, this is actually a huge turnabout, though, from the position most Americans had in 2011, the last time the country dealt with the prospect of default. Back then, 7 in 10 were opposed to raising it. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reporting. Authorities in Florida have identified the journalist who was shot and killed yesterday outside of Orlando, along with two other people. The victims include a young girl. From member station WMFE, Danielle Pryor reports that journalist Dylan Lyons was on assignment when he was shot and killed. Lyons was a reporter for Spectrum News 13. His photographer, Jesse Walden, also was shot but survived. The two were covering a shooting in the Pine Hills neighborhood in the Orlando area that left a 20-year-old woman dead when the suspect, 19-year-old Keith Moses, returned to the site and opened fire on them. He later went to the home of a 9-year-old girl, shooting and killing the girl and injuring her mother. The Orange County Sheriff's Office are still investigating a motive in all three killings that have been linked to Moses. For NP- NPR News. I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It is a wintry mess out there this morning, something we haven't seen too much of this year. Right now, there's light snow in Boston, Worcester, and along the North Shore. It's raining in Plymouth and on the Cape. In between, it's a mix of sleet and ice. This should all move out by midday, but more sleet and freezing rain will come in tonight. Because of the weather, the speed limit on the Mass Pike is down to 40 miles per hour. Right now, there are no weather-related delays on the T. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell says her office will balance local and national issues when it comes to being the state's top lawyer. Campbell made those comments on Radio Boston. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more on how this could affect gun policy. A.G. Campbell says her office has been working to protect the state's existing gun laws. The effort includes filing briefs to maintain an assault weapons ban, but she's also pledging to form a gun enforcement unit. Assigning actual lawyers and staff where their sole responsibility is to work with municipalities, to work with local uh, law enforcement, to enforce our gun laws. Some may have the resources and human capital to do that, others may not. We can provide assistance there, best practices and sharing of information. Campbell says this unit would be responsible for addressing community trauma and breaking cycles of violence. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. Some Boston city councilors are hesitant about Mayor Michelle Wu's proposal to limit rent hikes in the city. The mayor's plan would tie most annual increases to the rate of inflation. Hikes would be limited to 10 percent. City Council President Ed Flynn says even if the council approves the petition, the legislature and governor would also need to sign off on the plan. Flynn suggests the city should first find out what leaders on Beacon Hill would consider. So we're presenting them a proposal that we know it that's going to get signed instead of just sending a proposal up there that we know it's going to die up there. We should have an idea of what the state house leadership will accept, what they will sign. Legislative leaders have not mentioned rent control as a priority this session.
Massachusetts lawmakers are celebrating $5 million in federal funds going to veterans. The money will be used to help veterans with mental health issues and brain injuries. The money is going to Home Base, the nonprofit founded by the Red Sox and Massachusetts General Hospital. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. The Celtics open their second half of the season tonight on the road against the Indiana Pacers. The Bruins will begin a four-game Western road trip tonight as they visit the Seattle Kraken. And again, it's a sloppy mix of rain, sleet, and snow out there right now. That wintry mix is going to be with us through the afternoon. The high today will be in the mid-30s. A chance for freezing rain, sleet, and rain overnight. Temperatures will fall to the 20s. Mostly sunny tomorrow with a high in the 30s. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 8.07. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. China's top diplomat went to Russia this week. Wang Yi was in Moscow, and his visit illustrated a reality. China remains one of Russia's very few powerful friends in the world. Though Chinese diplomats talk often about sovereignty and have even said that Ukraine's sovereignty should be respected, China has not abandoned Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Now the United States is warning China not to support Russia's invasion more actively. Robert Daly joins us next. He's director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Good morning, sir. Good to be back with you. It's good to talk with you. How is China helping Russia right now? Well, China is helping Russia through providing an awful lot of dual-use technology, things like semiconductors, drones, chemical precursors that can be used in weapons. And it's also helping Russia by buying a lot of its hydrocarbons and by sticking up for Russia rhetorically. It's repeating on global stages and in front of anybody who asks that it is really the fault of the United States and NATO uh, that Russia and Ukraine are at war. They are pushing the Russian line that it was NATO's expansion eastward that truly threatened Russian sovereignty and that justified the violence. Okay, so buying Russian oil and gas, which sends the money, sending them technology and other materials. But then the question becomes, is there something more that China seems likely to do? Well, clearly the United States has specific intelligence indicating that China is thinking about, not that it's done it, but is thinking about directly providing lethal aid. And Secretary of State Blinken warned the Chinese foreign minister last week in Munich uh, that China must not take this step or there will be serious repercussions, meaning more sanctions. And the United States is also sharing this intelligence with allies. So the NATO chief, uh, Jan Stoltenberg, has also warned China that he sees evidence that it is considering providing lethal aid. And so NATO and the United States are warning China against taking this step. I'm trying to think of what China might have that Russia could use in this situation. We know that Russia has a lot of weapons. We also know that they've used a lot of ammunition. They may be running low. They've needed to get drones from Iran. Are there specific military pieces of military hardware that the Chinese may have that the Russians could use? Well, ammunition, artillery, uh, armed drones would all be in the mix. Uh, The great difficulty for China is that anything that it provided along these lines would be discovered on the battlefield in Ukraine. China is not going to be able to do this secretly. 
uh, and it surely knows that. So to provide lethal aid would be to cast its lot wholly with Putin in a way that it's been hesitant to do to date. Okay, well, that gets to the next question. Russia has, as it famously said a, a year ago, a no-limits partnership with China, but are there, in fact, limits? There have been limits so far. China has not criticized Russia, and it's provided all sorts of aid, uh, as we've said. It, it claims to have a neutral position, but the West doesn't buy that. China has clearly been working closely with Russia in many ways, and it had been before the invasion of Ukraine. So the question now is, does China see a real risk that uh, Russia could lose or that Putin could be defeated in a way that would leave China without its major ally in a confrontation with the United States. It is fear of that that would be behind any Chinese decision to provide lethal aid. It hasn't wanted to take that step. The posture of peacemaker is very important for Xi Jinping, both before the world and before his own people. But he also sees himself in an existential competition with the United States, for which he needs Russia. So any decision to provide lethal aid would reflect a Chinese fear that Putin was losing. Oh, I'm glad that you said the word peacemaker because China is widely expected to unveil some kind of peace plan for Ukraine. Can you imagine anything practical coming of that? No. Uh, on Friday, China is going to unveil something. But China, of course, is from a slightly different angle, trapped in the same problem that all other potential peacemakers are, which is that uh, Putin cannot be rewarded for his aggression, uh, but nor can he be utterly defeated and humiliated. He has to be given something if a peace is going to hold. And so China generally hides behind broad statements uh, and one that it issued two days ago, things like only security based on morality and correct ideas can have a solid foundation. So they talk about sovereignty and non-interference in affairs, but we've seen nothing specific. Okay, just the idea of correct ideas. Okay, that's all they've got. Yes. Robert, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Good to talk with you. Thanks. Robert Daly is director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. How did an Israeli military operation turn so deadly? Israel says it was trying to prevent attacks by launching one of its own. This happened in the occupied West Bank. And for those who don't follow this daily, we mention a few basics. Israel captured that region in a 1967 war and has controlled it since. Palestinians who live there have some authority in some areas, but Israel sends security forces where they choose. And yesterday, Israelis said they wanted to capture three suspects who were accused of planning future attacks. By the time it was over, 11 Palestinians were killed. Washington Post reporter Miriam Berger is in the West Bank. Uh, Miriam, how did this uh, raid unfold? So you know, yesterday, um, around 10.30 a.m., uh, the uh, Israeli military began a raid on uh, the Palestinian city of Nablus um, in the northern West Bank. Um, it you know, was crowded day in the old city. Um, and by the end of it, 11 people, Palestinians, had been killed. Um, among them were 16-year-old, 72-year-old, 61-year-old, 66-year-old. And um, uh, militant groups took said that six of those also were killed, uh, were members of their um, were members of their groups. And the Israeli military said it was uh, targeting, in particular, three wanted um, fighters who it said had planned had carried out attacks and were planning um, immediate attacks. Um, but, you know, this is a very, very crowded area. It was the daytime, um, and the stories, um, you know, uh, lots of civilians were in the area, um, and it, it left a very, very chaotic and bloody scene. And how are Palestinians responding? 
So, you know, this is part of a uh, increase in raids and arrests that have been happening for nearly a year now. Um, and it's really, really infuriated people. Um, you know, you know, average Palestinians are, um, you know, experiencing much more of a sort of an increase in violence in their everyday, um, and especially in places like Nablus and uh, Janine, uh, a nearby city, which have also, um, you know, sort of been the centers of this unrest. Um, the various armed groups that have been forming, many of them, uh, of sort of young, disillusioned people who are, you know, from various political factions that are uniting, you know, in sort of these localized groups. Um, they've, you know, uh, you know, pledged to step up attacks, so have the sort of larger historic, uh, larger groups as well. Um, you know, people are really feeling very under threat right now. And the rise in violence has also coincided with the election of the most right-wing government in Israel's history. How is that affecting the situation? Uh, it very much is. Uh, you know, so there's, you know, key members of, of this new government have, you know, said they want to entirely annex occupied West Bank. They have called for much harsher, um, already harsher, um, you know, policies against Palestinians. Um, it's really made people afraid and, and sort of lost hope. You talk to folks and there's just a, a constantly hear people saying, like, there's no prospects, there's no hopes, there's no belief in a political process. Um, and there's um, there's no belief in the international community helping out Palestinians either. So people really feel like they're backed into a corner right now. And then these raids happen, um, and it really it, you know just um, exacerbates the whole cycle. Miriam Berger is a Washington Post reporter covering the Middle East and foreign affairs. Miriam, thanks. Thank you for having me. Prosecutors in Colorado have started laying out their case for hate crimes charges in the Club Q shooting. You may recall this, the gunfire in November killed five people and wounded more than a dozen others at the LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs. The defendant is claiming mental illness and a history of abuse. Abigail Beckman reports from our member station KRCC. Police say 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich posted neo-Nazi content online, along with a video showing mass shootings at mosques and synagogues. They found a rough, hand-drawn map of Club Q in Aldrich's apartment and evidence of six visits to the club in the last year or so. Patricia Harwood was one of dozens of survivors, family members, and friends of shooting victims who filled the courtroom. And for him to have been there so many times, I think that was just a... To me, I think it was just hateful and spiteful and evil. Aldrich uses they, them pronouns. Police say a friend Aldrich made on the Internet gave the FBI an image the suspect shared online showing the sight of a rifle centered over a photo from a gay pride parade. Another online contact told investigators Aldrich hated police, minorities, and LGBTQ people. I don't see any remorse in him at all, and we've been watching all day. Aldrich's lawyers say their client made a statement about being gay during the shooting and is non-binary. They say Aldrich is a victim of abuse and mentally ill and talked about being sorry. The defense says Aldrich was on nearly a dozen prescription medications for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder and anxiety and used a combination of illicit drugs the night of the shooting. Adriana Vance is the mother of Raymond Green Vance, one of the victims, who was 22. The fact they bringing up his mental illness and his drug use and all this like to me that has nothing to do with at the end of the day he still went in there and killed people and hurt a lot of people aldrich dressed in orange jail clothes cried throughout the day-long proceeding shaking and rocking back and forth he was crying for himself but he's gonna have a lot more crying to do so 
<laughs> he should save some of those tears right now. Among evidence prosecutors presented was a short poem by Aldrich on a yellow pad of paper in childlike handwriting. The final line said, how long must I wait for you to relieve me of this hate? The hearing on whether there's enough evidence to take Aldrich to trial is expected to end today. For NPR News, I'm Abigail Beckman in Colorado Springs. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we visit a new Dorchester restaurant that's trying to change the way people see food from places like Africa and the Caribbean. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Emerson Colonial Theater, hosting a conversation with author and social commentator Fran Lebowitz on Thursday, March 9th. EmersonColonialTheater.com. In Nigeria, millions of people rely on cash every day, but right now it's nearly impossible to get. That's led to a lot of frustration just days before the country's presidential election. No, I cannot be proud of this country because the country has messed a lot of people up. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, Nigeria's cash crisis on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. And now the forecast. It's been a messy morning, and it doesn't seem like it's going to get much better today. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us live to tell us more. Good morning, Danielle. Hey, good morning, Rupa. So it's snowing in Boston. What's happening right now where you are? Uh, Well, I'm north of town uh, in the Merrimack Valley, and I just measured about 20 minutes ago, and I have just under 5 inches, 4.7. So you know, I, I won't say it's been a bit of a surprise because I had two to four inches in the forecast, but it's still coming down right now. Um, you know, it's a huge difference between those that have had rain, uh, a little bit of snow, and then, you know, nearly half a foot in parts of northeastern Massachusetts. Yeah, it seems like what ha- what's happening where depends on this moving rain-snow line. Yes, the rain-snow line has been kind of hovering right near the Mass Turnpike. We even had some sleep mix in north of Boston for a brief time this morning. Now it's the precipitation overall is much lighter, um, but that being said, it's still coming down. There's a little break in the action where it's just going to be kind of this, you know, flurry activity, a little bit of mist and drizzle. And then I do anticipate some more sleet and wintry mix to fill in over the next couple of hours. This is just going to be the case pretty much the whole day today, kind of off and on, not real heavy stuff, but that's going to mean road crews will probably still be out through the course of the afternoon, uh, treating the roads. Anything untreated is going to be slick. I'm thinking, you know, sidewalks, driveways, things like that. You definitely want to watch your step this afternoon, even in Boston, where, let me see, right now the temperature is 33. So it's very close to that 32 degree mark. Um, It's going to drop through this afternoon, even in the South Shore, Cape Cod will be dropping this evening too. So it may turn a little bit slick. And then it sounds like we get another onslaught late tonight and overnight. Yes. And it's just this next one coming in is just a a really kind of quick hitter. It's going to be generally light, but same deal. Light freezing rain, some light sleet mixing in, maybe a coating of snow, but it's mainly some wintry sleet and freezing rain mixing in. Like a few hours, 8 to 10 p.m. 
it's probably done by like 2 a.m. So just a, a quick one, but that's going to re-slicken things up. Um, you know, secondary roads, anything that hasn't been treated again will turn a little bit icy as the temperature drops. So definitely a bit of an active pattern here. And then I've been telling people it's going to be sunny tomorrow, but with the weather today, that's hard to believe. I know. So eventually the system is going to move offshore and I do anticipate the sun to come out probably, you know, early morning tomorrow it breaks through. Um, it's totally different feel tomorrow, blustery, sun and clouds, maybe a flurry. Um, but the big thing tomorrow is there's going to be another front coming in. It's basically going to drop the temperature um, pretty sharply tomorrow evening. So our temperatures early will be in the 30s, but then we're going to fall into the 20s and teens very quickly tomorrow evening. The wind's going to pick up as well. So the wind chill value is going to go sub-zero by Friday overnight and early on Saturday morning as we get this snap of cold air coming in. Okay. What about the weekend? Give us something to look forward to, please. Oh, no, Rupa, you're like, okay, I don't want this cold. <laughs> and I know that. So here's the thing. Saturday, we won't get out of the 20s. That's the coldest day. Um, by Sunday, we're probably back up like 35 to 40 degrees. Um, next week, we're probably 35 to 40. Um, but here's the thing. It's a very active jet stream right now. And what I mean by that, the jet stream kind of acts as a you know, river of air high in the sky. It steers storms. It controls the temperature here. And it's going to be kind of right over us. And what that means is this weekend, there'll probably be some snow showers around. I'm not expecting any big accumulations or anything like that. I just don't want you to be caught off guard if you see a couple snow showers this weekend, especially on Sunday. Um, but by Tuesday of next week, it looks like another pretty significant storm um, may work in our direction. A little too early to say amounts, but it does look like potentially a snowy scenario Monday night into Tuesday, maybe a rain-snow line involved again in southern New England. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce, thanks for delivering this bad news so pleasantly. <laughs> oh, don't you love the end of February and March? It's always so fun. <laughs> Have a good day. You too. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 824. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Sony Pictures Classics with One Fine Morning, a film by Mia Hansen-Love, with Leia Seydoux as a widow juggling her young daughter, her sick father, and a married friend with whom she sparks an affair. Starts Friday. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Just weeks after its opening, a new restaurant in Dorchester has been called one of the best in the city by Boston Magazine and Eater. The owners of Comfort Kitchen say they're trying to change the way people think about immigrant cuisine and immigrant labor. I stopped by to check it out, and Comfort Kitchen is in a small, historic building that used to be a rest stop for streetcar riders. A car repair shop is on one side, and an old cemetery is on the other. Inside, there's seating for about 30 people. The small kitchen is located behind a bar area. There's lots of natural lighting and plants sprinkled throughout the space. The decor is simple, but the food isn't. I'm Bipla Rai, the managing partner of Comfort Kitchen. I'm Kwesi Kwa, chef partner of Comfort Kitchen. 
you get a magazine for a menu for the dinner menu and it has some really amazing pictures and incredible descriptions that tell us like where the dishes are from, how they came to be, what it says about the civilization that they come from. We tell the story of the ingredients, but not just the ingredients, but also the people behind it and the, the story of how it got to be where it is. Like we have an okra dish on the menu. You see okra in all parts of Africa, Caribbean. And the thing that really completes that dish is the plantain crumbs on it. And plantains is a very specific, you know, Caribbean and Haitian... African, all that. Yes. And it's an immersion of two worlds, basically. I decide to order a breakfast sandwich with pork belly, dill havarti, and fried egg on a brioche bun. It's called the Dreamer, and it has a special meaning for Kwa. I'm a dreamer. I'm on the Dreamer's Act, you know, from DACA, and that was one of, that's one of my favorite sandwiches. Kwa is from Ghana, and Rai is from Nepal. They met years ago working in the kitchens of other Boston restaurants. When you have like refugees and immigrants, the first job that people usually get attracted to or easiest one to is restaurant industry. And we always used to have conversations about if we were able to ever do this, the kind of changes that we want to see will like to kind of manifest in our own space. They both say they've experienced toxic restaurant workplaces. They say they're trying to change that culture and pay their workers livable wages. It took years to bring that vision to life. And Rye says it took a staff of mostly immigrants they'd met in other local restaurants. Because we have so many people involved that we care so deeply about, it also helps us be very accountable for what we do and how we operate the business. Because if we act like our past bosses, yep. everybody in this building knows where to find us. <laughs> so <laughs> there's no hiding. Real quick. <laughs> They're also held accountable for their food. Kwa says making familiar cultural comfort food means people from those cultures are going to have opinions, especially when he adds a twist. There's so much culture tied into food that you never want to misrepresent a person's culture. Specific things that it's just like, no, we're gonna make this dish as is, we're not gonna change anything about it. And then we have certain ingredients that we allow ourselves creative leeway. Things like jerk duck, where we're trying to celebrate the jerk, which was originally a preservation method. You see jerk chicken all the time, it's like, let's make, let's spice it up a little bit. And Rai says while they're spicing up their food, they're also hoping to have an impact beyond their own business. If you really want to know or want to change policies in the United States, you want to start in restaurant industry. That's the intersection for everything. Healthcare, minimum wage, labor laws, food laws. Clearly, you're hoping this is a template, that this spreads. Like your ethics, your vision, your philosophies spread. How do you see the future? How do you see that happening? We want to see it change within our lifetime. I want to see our minimum wage go from 15 to 25. We may not be able to change the industry, but if we're able to change the way we work right here in, this in, in our restaurant, we'd be happy. And with that, I finally tried my dreamer sandwich. Oh my gosh, you guys, this is amazing. You're used to people saying that now. <laughs> Bipla Rai and Quasi Kwa are the owners of Comfort Kitchen in Dorchester. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. 
directtire.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Democratic lawmakers in the House are accusing House Speaker Kevin McCarthy of creating potential security issues by releasing U.S. Capitol surveillance footage to Fox News host Tucker Carlson. McCarthy gave Carlson and his producers more than 40,000 hours of video from the January 6th attack at the Capitol. Democrat Benny Thompson of Mississippi chaired the House Select Committee that investigated the events of that day. When members were escorted out of the Capitol during the height of the insurrection, that path is a secured path not known to the public. It's available on the video. So if there was someone who wanted to do harm to people, then access to this video clearly puts those individuals who work in that building at risk. Thompson was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. The House Speaker tells the New York Times he plans to make the video more widely available at some point. Police in Florida say a 19-year-old is under arrest following separate shootings near Orlando. They left three people dead and two others injured. Those killed include a 9-year-old girl and a TV journalist. The sheriff of Orange County says investigators are still examining a potential motive for the attacks. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It is a messy winter morning out there right now. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says there is snow north of the Mass Pike, rain along the south coast, and sleet and ice in between. Still a mix of everything out there, which will gradually taper through the midday. Difficult travel, watch your step, icy walkways and driveways. Basically anything untreated will be slippery. The temperature drops through the day today, and that's as another round of light freezing rain and sleet moves in this evening, 8 to 10 p.m. It's quick and ends overnight, but renewed icy spots and tough travel is expected. Police have lowered the speed limit on the Mass Pike to 40 miles an hour because of the weather. At Logan Airport, more than 35 departures have been canceled already today. Most of those are on JetBlue. Fitchburg State, Plymouth State, and Framingham State are all closed for the day. It doesn't feel like it this morning, but this winter has actually been very mild. That's meant an early season for maple syrup producers in Massachusetts. And as Adam Frenier reports, this year's activity has been part of a trend. Howard Boyden operates a sugar house in Conway, Massachusetts. He says decades ago, the season started around March 1st. But now... If I'm not tapping, or at this point, tapped by February 14th, you know, we're missing out on it. Despite the early start, Boyden says the run of cool nights and mild days has helped the quality of this year's product. Sweeter sap, for one thing, so less processing time. And, you know, everything is, is cold. It's near freezing. And, you know, so you get some really, really nice sap. Boyden says more cold weather could help prolong the season. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. Massachusetts is looking at using a vacant hotel in Newton as a shelter for families that need emergency housing. The State Department of Housing tells the Boston Globe it would use the former Hotel Indigo to house migrant families. Some residents are worried about how that would impact traffic and local schools. It's unclear when the building could open as a shelter. It's 833. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Bruins will go for their fifth straight win tonight. They'll visit the Seattle Kraken. The Celtics are back from the All-Star break tonight. They're on the road to play the Indiana Pacers. Recapping your messy forecast, we'll get a mix of rain, freezing rain, and sleet today. It'll be windy, and temperatures will fall throughout the day to the mid-20s by late afternoon. Right now, it's 33 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. The Biden administration wants to restrict who can seek asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. This is the latest move in a larger crackdown, a U.S. effort to cut the flow of people crossing the border, although immigrant advocates are not happy. NPR's Joel Rose reports on how the Biden administration came to embrace a tougher approach. When President Biden came into office, he signed a flurry of executive orders, rolling back some of former President Trump's harshest immigration policies. And to provide a safe and orderly processing of asylum seekers at the United States border. A lot of people in the White House were thrilled, including Andrea Flores. In the beginning, it felt like we were all rowing in the same direction. And and one of our clear goals was how do you offer access to asylum in an orderly way? Flores and other former administration officials say there's been a vigorous debate ever since about how to restore asylum protections for the most vulnerable, while also deterring migrants from making the dangerous journey through Mexico and crossing the border illegally. But as migrant apprehensions at the border rose to record levels, Flores says advisors in the White House grew increasingly obsessed with getting the border numbers down. They were considering many of the tools that the Trump administration used and that Democrats had really uniformly condemned. And that was very unsettling to me. Flores quit after less than a year and now works for New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez. She was not surprised in January when President Biden announced a new set of border enforcement policies, a mix of carrots and sticks intended to discourage migrants from crossing the border illegally. This week, the administration unveiled its biggest stick yet, a temporary rule that would make it harder for migrants to get asylum if they cross the border into the U.S. illegally after passing through Mexico or another country without seeking protection there first. Immigrant advocates are furious. It violates President Biden's own promises to restore asylum. That's Krish Omera Vignaraja, the head of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, on a call with reporters yesterday. This is very nearly a carbon copy of the Trump asylum plan that was blocked by the courts. That Trump-era policy would have turned back nearly all migrants who crossed through Mexico on their way to the U.S. Here's what candidate Joe Biden had to say about that in an interview with the National Association of Black Journalists in 2020. This is the first time ever you've had to seek asylum in a third country. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. It's wrong. 
The Biden administration insists the new asylum rule is very different from Trump's because it has exceptions for the most vulnerable migrants, and it's coupled with new legal pathways for certain migrants who can qualify. The administration is also grappling with a big shift in where migrants are coming from. Angela Kelly was an immigration advisor at the Department of Homeland Security and is now with the American Immigration Lawyers Association. The facts on the ground have changed. We have four failed nation states in our hemisphere, between Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela. That is producing a different kind of migration flow. It's unprecedented. That's an argument you hear from the White House, too. In an interview, a senior official said the Biden administration has tailored its approach to changes in migration, but insists that its principles have stayed the same from day one. Still, some outside observers see a pronounced shift toward tougher enforcement. The administration has come to the realization that it really has to rethink where it's been on handling the border. Doris Meisner was a top immigration official in the Clinton administration. She's now at the nonpartisan Migration Policy Institute. Meisner thinks the Biden administration is trying to reestablish a kind of balance at the border. There will be ways to come to the country legally, but there also will be real consequences. There cannot be chaos at the border. It's the same language the Biden administration has been using all along. But what it means for migrants has changed a lot in two years. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. One basic idea of this republic is that the people make big decisions. So what do the people make of it when a debate in Congress is utterly confusing? Congress is approaching a crisis over the debt ceiling. Essentially, House Republicans have declined to allow borrowing to pay the bills that Congress has previously run up. They say they will not do that until President Biden agrees to cuts in future spending But spending cuts are unpopular, and Republicans have so far declined to tell the public what they would like to cut. They have a few months before the U.S. risks default on its debt. (sighs) That's a lot. Almost by design, the debate is hard to follow, but an NPR-PBS NewsHour Marist poll tries to find out what voters think. And we also have NPR's senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro, here to uh, help us uh, figure all of this out. So, Domenico, this uh, survey asked people for their feelings about the debt ceiling. What did you learn about how Americans are viewing uh, debt ceiling deliberations? Well, Americans are largely split, but half of respondents in the survey say they support raising it, and almost equal numbers say they don't, which is clearly pointing to the looming fight on this and reflective of how divided Congress is itself. You know, this is actually a huge turnabout, though, from the position most Americans had in 2011, the last time the country dealt with the prospect of default. Back then, seven in 10 were opposed to raising it. But the country has seen, you know, the consequences of a credit downgrade. There's been a bit of an education on the importance of this tool and what it even means. But dealing with the country's overall debt, that's another story. And are Americans just as divided as Congress on how to deal with the national debt? You know, what we're seeing is a bit ironic here. Most people, 7 in 10 in the survey, say they want compromise, including a majority of Republicans. But 50 percent are saying they mostly want to see cuts to programs and spending to reduce the debt. But an almost equal 46 percent want to raise taxes and fees. They fall along the usual partisan lines with a majority of independents siding with most Republicans in saying that the programs should be cut. This is also an increase, though, since uh, the last time this question was asked a decade ago about whether taxes and fees should be raised. Okay, so then where does that leave negotiations in Congress or the country's ability to cut into that debt? 
Social Security and Medicare make up more than half of the national debt, but Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said those cuts are off the table. Democrats certainly don't want to slash the benefit. Uh, Republicans are also not in favor of cutting defense spending, which makes up about half of the other slice of the pie, which doesn't leave much left over to make a significant dent in the debt. We are seeing, though, a little changing of the tide with younger Americans. They are most likely to say they're in favor of raising taxes, up double digits uh, on that in the past decade. They're also driving support for a minimum wage to be raised to $15 an hour. Almost two-thirds of people now overall are now in favor of that. All right, so what else uh, do people think about priorities uh, Congress will be taking on as we're in this new session they're in? Yeah, two things here on Ukraine funding, a plurality, 42%, say that it's been about right. But something's brewing here. Almost half of Republicans now say the U.S. is providing too much support to Ukraine. Republican opposition has really steadily grown in the past year of this war. And this is shaping up to become a real issue, not just in Congress, but also on the campaign trail. Another Republican priority, investigating the president's son, Hunter Biden, Almost six in 10 say they support a congressional investigation into his business dealings. So Republicans very much going to feel like they have the wind at their backs on this issue. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thanks a lot. You're welcome. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, aid groups are worried that the war in Ukraine is overshadowing humanitarian disasters like the ongoing crisis in Yemen. In your forecast, we have rain, sleet, and snow coming down across the region at this hour. That may turn to freezing rain this afternoon as temperatures fall to the mid-20s. Watch out also for some high winds. Tonight, cloudy and low 20s. And overnight, we may see freezing rain, sleet, and snow, although no accumulation is expected. Sunny and low 30s on Friday. It's 33 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. Watertown-based Ileron Therapeutics is facing an uncertain future amid failed trials for its cancer drugs. The biotech says it cut its workforce down from nine to just three employees. Ileron leaders say they are now exploring the possibility of a merger or selling off assets. Waltham-based Apellis Pharmaceuticals is getting FDA approval for a drug to treat a leading cause of blindness. This is the first drug from the company to earn approval. Apellis says the drug will be available here in the U.S. early next month. The head of Dana-Farber's Center for Cancer Therapeutic Innovation is starting a new job. Cambridge-based NextPoint Therapeutics says Lena Gandhi is its chief medical officer. NextPoint says Gandhi will oversee the biotech's development of new cancer treatments. It's 844. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. 
and from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. Yeah, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Humanitarian needs around the world are immense. U.N. agencies, for example, are trying to raise funds to help people in Syria and Turkey recover from a devastating earthquake and help Ukrainians under attack from Russia. But aid workers say, don't forget Yemen. That's a message that NPR's Michelle Kellerman has been hearing from an aid worker based in the capital of Sana'a. The World Food Program runs one of the largest aid operations in the world in Yemen, feeding millions of people trapped in a complicated war that has devastated the country. The WFP's Richard Reagan says he knows there's a lot of competition for aid donations around the world, but he brought this message to Washington. Now is not the time to take your foot off the gas for Yemen because there's hope. There is an uneasy truce in Yemen. Houthi rebels, backed by Iran, control most of the country, with the South run by a government backed by Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states. The Saudi-led airstrikes that led to many civilian deaths and widespread damage in the country have abated. The Houthis are trying to transform themselves from an armed militia to a governing body. Reagan says that's a challenge. We deal with them every day, all day, and it's a grind. <laughs> you know, it's not an easy process. And that's coming from someone who has a lot of experience. I've been in the UN system working for the World Food Program for 25 years. I was a representative in North Korea, and I have to say this is the most challenging place I've ever worked. And the Houthis are making it even more challenging now, placing restrictions on women aid workers. The war is at a pivotal point. Saudi Arabia has tried for the past eight years to reinstall the government that the Houthis ousted. Nadwa Aldosari of the Middle East Institute says the Saudis are now just tired of a war that has seen the Houthis repeatedly attack Saudi territory. And their priorities have changed from defeating the Houthis, reinstating the government into Sana'a, to kind of keep the Houthis at bay and get some sort of like reassurances from the Houthis that the cross-border attacks will stop. But that leaves out many other groups in Yemen who, she says, oppose the Houthis. They are fearful of Houthi taking control of the country. I mean, this is an extremely oppressive group. Particularly, she says, for women and minorities. So she has some advice for policymakers here in Washington. I think the international community should not normalize with the Houthis. The international community should not pressure Yemenis to accept a political settlement with the Houthis, where the Houthis have the upper hand, which is the case now. Aid groups have sought to keep lines open to the Houthis because they control areas where millions of people are in need. The State Department says it has no illusions about the group, but is focused on tamping down the violence and keeping aid flowing. The U.S. has provided more than a billion dollars for Yemen last year and is looking to others to give generously at an upcoming pledging meeting. Richard Reagan of the World Food Program puts it this way. We would have Last year probably had to turn out the lights if the U.S. didn't show up because the Gulf states didn't contribute in a significant way. And now with rising needs everywhere in the world, he's calling for continued support for Yemen. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the rise in strikes by organized labor. And coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Scott Tong is here in studio to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Scott. Hey, Rupa. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, nice to see you again. So a tale of two states in a water war in the American West. Our own Peter O'Dowd, who lives out in the West, has the next in his series on the dwindling Colorado River. Mm-hmm. And as the rules work, a California carrot farmer gets more access to the scarce water than a wheat farmer just across the border in Arizona. Fabulous real-life story uh, about the environment, and Peter has that in our show. We have a former Soviet diplomat talking to our own Eleanor Beardsley about Russia's war in Ukraine one year on. The Capitol tapes from January 6th, we know they have been given exclusively to Fox News host Tucker Carlson. We'll get a response from Adam Schiff, Democratic congressman, And Howard University's swim team, it is the only all-black swim team in the country, and they're on the verge of a conference championship, and we talk to the coach. Save the best for last. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, thanks. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.50. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world. Our co-host, Leila Fadel, has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community. Workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield. Think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib & Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. Habib, A-R-C-H.com. There's rain, sleet, and snow coming down across much of the region. That'll become freezing rain this afternoon as temperatures fall into the 20s. We'll also have some gusty winds. Overcast tonight in the low 20s. Then overnight, we may see more freezing rain, sleet, and snow, but not enough for any accumulation. Tomorrow, we end the week with a sunny day with a high of 32. It's 33 degrees in Boston at 851. Sanctioned Russian oligarchs still have money managers. What about them? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the United States Postal Service, offering postage stamps for purchase at more than 40,000 supermarkets, drugstores, office suppliers, and wholesale clubs. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. One year ago tomorrow, Russia invaded Ukraine. Coming up on this milestone, are sanctions working against powerful, wealthy Russians, the oligarchs? A new paper co-authored by Dartmouth sociologist Brooke Harrington argues these sanctions need to be refocused. Professor, good morning to you. Good morning. Do you think that perhaps we should rethink the way that sanctions are targeted? Maybe not just on the oligarchs, but who? The people managing the money? Yeah, the wealth managers, they turn out to be the the hubs of this big international system. And in this most recent article in PNAS Nexus, we show that if you sanction the wealth managers who serve the oligarchs, you get a much more effective sanctions result. How would it work? Essentially, you're not supposed to have this as a client. We see that he is a client. If you don't get rid of the client, you're in trouble. Well, although the the oligarchs, not just from Russia, but everywhere, enjoy these flashy perks offshore, like the the super yachts and the private jets and the villas, they themselves usually don't own those things directly. And they're not figuring out 
the legal codes of various offshore jurisdictions in order to, to make sure that those assets are difficult to sanction. All of that is outsourced to this group of professionals called wealth managers. And if you take away the wealth managers from that system, the oligarchs can't easily access their wealth anymore. And how challenging would it be for authorities in the sanctioning countries to make the link between the wealth manager and the oligarch? It seems like sometimes that's an opaque system. Well, normally it would be, but one of the benefits of having had these big leaks from offshore, starting with the Panama Papers in 2016, followed by the Paradise Papers in 2017, and then the Pandora Papers in 2021, is we now have a a better picture, a much better picture of these links among oligarchs and their wealth managers offshore. Now, countries like the U.S., or the UK, organizations like the European Union, they have access to this data and more. And all of those entities have begun sanctioning offshore wealth managers. And we should spell it out. Sanctioning oligarchs is not just about shunning for shunning's sake. The idea would be oligarchs, these tycoons, are influential enough that they might have the ear of people making decisions in Russia and could perhaps alter policy. I'm really glad that you raised that point because that's I think that's often misunderstood. People who oppose sanctions on Russian oligarchs say, look, none of these oligarchs have any influence whatsoever over Vladimir Putin. However, there's a long history of using sanctions to split oligarchs' loyalty so that they no longer adhere to the strongman who depends on the appearance of an iron grip on his lieutenants in order to maintain power. So every oligarch you can chip away, every elite who publicly expresses disgruntlement or disloyalty to the strongman regime creates a crack in this edifice of autocracy that makes it more likely that that regime will be toppled. Brooke Harrington is a professor at Dartmouth. Thank you very much. Thank you. And it's still generally legal for sanctioned Russians to hold assets in U.S. hedge funds. Let's do the numbers. S&P futures are up four-tenths percent now. NASDAQ futures are up eight-tenths of a percent. Remember the soaring price of natural gas? Well, wholesale prices are down by two-thirds since December. I know it doesn't look like a mild winter today, but energy statisticians think so. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. A new analysis finds the U.S. government will run out of money to pay what it owes earlier than calculated. This is the fight over raising the debt ceiling. Now the Bipartisan Policy Center, a Washington think tank, says the drop dead date will come as early as June. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. Yeah, David, we've had a bunch of varying projections. Last we heard on the subject was from, from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was in January when she told Congress the nation likely won't run out of options before early June. Now, last week, the Congressional Budget Office said we have at least until July. Now we have this projection from the Bipartisan Policy Center. It moves the date 
closer. And what it's saying is that if the IRS doesn't collect as much money as expected this tax filing season, it is possible that the default date could be as early as June. Now, again, then again, it could also be as late as early fall. So the projection window is unusually wide right now. There's a lot of economic uncertainty, but the default window will narrow as time goes on. All right. So I guess pay the taxes here. Yes. Republicans are negotiating for cuts in future spending using this debt ceiling as Mm -hmm. leverage. How bad will it be if the money really is allowed to run out? Well, it's really hard to say with certainty because it's never happened before, right? We've come dangerously close before, and that's not been good. Our credit rating got downgraded in 2011 after another standoff. That means borrowing got more expensive for the federal government than it otherwise would be. Now, coming close again could mean further credit rating downgrades. And generally speaking, the assumption is that a default would likely lead to a cascading set of events that end in higher unemployment and a recession and potentially a severe recession, David. All right, Nova, thank you. And if your husband or your wife does something bad, you could still be financially responsible, even if you never knew what they were up to. The U.S. Supreme Court yesterday unanimously reaffirmed that partners can also be left holding the bag and that ignorance of wrongdoing doesn't get you off the hook. This was a San Francisco case about who pays $200,000, part of a judgment in a lawsuit involving a house sold to a developer. The husband misrepresented the house. The developer sued but the wife also now has to pay. Drawing from an 1885 case, Justice Amy Coney Barrett wrote that, quote, innocent people are sometimes held liable for fraud they did not personally commit. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. We're from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Today on The Common Podcast, Haitian migrants landing in Massachusetts are waiting months to years for documentation that will allow them to legally work in the U.S. Learn more about the impact of the backlog across Boston. That's on The Common, where you find your podcasts. Windy today with temperatures falling throughout the day from where they are now to the mid-20s. Meanwhile, we'll get a messy mix of rain, sleet, and freezing rain. Cloudy and mid-20s tonight, then more messy weather overnight. Rain, freezing rain, sleet, and snow are possible. No accumulation is expected. It's 33 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Wife of Wilsden at ART, a body new comedy by Zadie Smith, adapted from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Starts Saturday, amrep.org. In Nigeria, millions of people rely on cash every day, but right now it's nearly impossible to get. That's led to a lot of frustration just days before the country's presidential election. No, I cannot be proud of this country because the country has messed a lot of people up. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, Nigeria's cash crisis on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.